You're listening to How to Stan, the podcast all about both specific fandoms and fandom culture as a whole. For more information about the show and the other show that I do, 17 Karat K-Pop, visit 17karatkpop.weebly.com. You can also go to 17karatkpop.weebly.com backslash how to stand for more specific information about this podcast. Enjoy the show! You are listening to How to Stand. This is episode 8, Sailor Moon. Unquestionably, anime is loved and read and watched globally now and has been that way for decades. But some anime characters definitely stand out from the rest, especially in terms of popularity outside of their origin country of Japan. And why is that? Why do those characters stand out? I could do episode on episode on episode about that, but I decided to focus my anime episode of this show on my personal favorite, Sailor Moon. She is the cartoon character who stars in manga and anime, and she continues to resonate with young and older generations alike. She's been around since the 90s. What is it that makes Sailor Moon stand out from the rest to me and many other fans of hers? What is it about her world that remains so relevant today? All of that I'm going to be breaking down, starting with a quick timeline recap. So Sailor Moon was originally called Pretty Soldier Sailor Moon, which was a manga with 18 different volumes. Over a million copies ended up being sold of that manga, and then it turned into an anime show in 1991. That first version of the show ran until 97. Actually, fun fact, Sailor Venus was originally the lead of that show, but it ended up being Sailor Moon who got the spotlight eventually. That first run of the show had 200 episodes, and after that, subsequent versions of the anime and the movies kept coming after that, then there were the musicals. In the 90s, Cartoon Network had an afternoon segment called Toonami, and Sailor Moon was a part of that lineup starting in 1992. So just one year after she had made her debut in Japan, she was already on Cartoon Network all over the world. The first musical production starring Sailor Moon was released in 1993, featuring original music, and several musical theater versions of Sailor Moon's story have come out since then, with award-winning famous composers. And Sailor Moon began broadcasting in Spain and France in 1993, followed by airing in Thailand, Indonesia, Italy, China, all over the world, and of course, eventually, it landed in North America. A novel version came out in 1998, an actual like full-length novel version of the manga and anime storylines. There was a live-action TV show that ran for a year, but there was another idea before that that eventually didn't pan out. But the idea was there, and the live-action version had some moderate, a moderate amount of an audience, enough for that season. There was also a 12-volume manga re-release the same year to coincide with the release and hype it up. There was also extreme surge of fan sites for Sailor Moon starting in 2004. The number of sites dedicated to Mickey Mouse that year, 491,000 worldwide. That's Mickey Mouse. Now, as for Sailor Moon, 3,335,000. In 2011, there was a re-release of the English version of the mangas, and that same year Sailor Moon topped the New York Times bestsellers list for manga specifically. A new anime version premiered in the summer of 2013, and several more followed it. 
you can get Sailor Moon tabletop games, video games for a short period of time in Universal Studios Japan. There was even a 4D Sailor Moon attraction at the theme park. Overall, over time, Sailor Moon has raked in so far $13 billion in merchandise. And overall, all versions of the Sailor Moon manga series have sold over 35 million copies worldwide. English translations have also been more localized, so different countries have been authorized to release their own translated versions. For example, Penguin Books in Australia, Turnaround Publisher Services in the UK, they've been given permission to translate those works and release English versions in those countries. So Sailor Moon really, really took over the world over a long period of time. Her story of success is not exactly an overnight one, but it's more like overnight success night after night after night for decades. As for what's next for this character and her story, actually what was set for t for releasing in this year, but due to COVID, it's been pushed back, was the release of a two-part new movie called Sailor Moon Eternal. That release date is now pushed back to 2021, as is the premiere of an ice skating show starring Sailor Moon. So to be announced if 2021 remains the release date about that content, but just saying that here to point out how we continue to get new content from the Sailor Moon world, and that's part of the reason why the story remains so relevant. But another big part of that is just the fact that the characters are really relatable. So here's a quick breakdown of what the whole plot is. Sailor Moon is part of a group of Sailor Scouts. They each have a name that's Sailor and then whatever planet they are associated with. Sailor Moon's character is and all of them are really, one of the big plot points to understand is that they are all reincarnated. So Queen Serenity needs them to help fix things. There's a lot of time travel in this storyline, but basically what happens is that Queen Serenity says that the Sailor Scouts need to be pushed into the future as reincarnations of Princess Serenity and others. So Sailor Moon is actually the reincarnation of Princess Serenity, and they have been ordered to rescue the Moon Princess, restore the Moon Kingdom, which was overtaken by the Dark Kingdom, they also have to prevent the theft of the legendary silver crystal because if they can get that in their possession and protect it, then they basically save the universe because if something happens to that silver crystal, there could be a collapse of the solar system, much like the chaos, although even on a more massive scale, that happened after the silver millennium when the moon kingdom was overtaken by the dark kingdom and that led into the current mess. So anyway, Queen Serenity sends... Sailor Moon, and then the Sailor Scouts join her to help try to avoid that fate. So each of the Sailor Scouts has a certain title and certain character traits that really stand out, as well as a key signature weapon or symbol or something like that. Sailor Moon is the soldier of love and justice. That is her title. But when she's not in Sailor Moon mode, she is just your average 14-year-old girl. In the first part of the series, she's in junior high, then she moves on to high school. But she's just your average teenager. She's super relatable. She doesn't really want to save the world. She doesn't really want to be a hero. Or she does. She's very loyal. She has a good moral compass. She's ready to... She wants to do good in the world, and she... She will do anything and sacrifice anything for the one she loves. She's incredibly loyal and seeks justice at all costs. But she's also very daunted by being given that much power. And she 
she acts like any 14-year-old would when, when given so much power, literal superpowers and everything. And so she's just a very emotional character. She's described often as a crybaby character. She gets very worked up and overwhelmed at times. So she's not like viewed as this quote-unquote perfect superhero. She has a lot of downs but also ups in her life. And so she's just super relatable. She also just has fun hobbies when she's just her regular self, like going to the arcade and stuff. So she's just very, very relatable. So that's Sailor Moon, a.k.a. Usagi, who she is when she's not in Sailor Moon mode. Sailor Venus is a friend, and she is the soldier of love and beauty. She has these dreams of becoming a famous J-pop singer, and actually in the live-action series, she was a famous J-pop singer, but typically part of her story is just she lawns for the day when she becomes one. Sailor Moon and Sailor Venus both own cats. These talking cats, Sailor Moon owns Luna, and then Sailor Venus owns Artemis. And there's also a third talking cat, Diana, but she's a lot younger than them, and she's she's uh, plays, I guess, a less significant role in this story, although an important role. But anyway, so Luna and Artemis are the talking cats that have were sent along with Princess Serenity to be reincarnated and to figure out, you know, how to save the world, basically, order on orders placed by Queen Serenity. Sailor Mars is the soldier of fire and passion. Sailor Mars is this priestess with special powers. She's a big character, although she does attend a private Catholic school away from the other main characters in this story. Sailor Mars is the soldier of fire and passion. She's a special priestess who has these special powers, and she attends this private Catholic school away from the other main characters, but she's still a big character. She owns these two crows who are basically these guardians. That They were these humanoid sprites that were sent to protect her, so her protectors instead of talking cats are these crows. And these crows are pretty important for most story, most versions of the story, although in the live-action series the crows were, take on a much smaller role than normal, but they are main characters and they're associated with Sailor Mars, the owner. There's Sailor Mercury, who is this bookworm character. Sailor Jupiter is the soldier of nature, lightning, and strength. Sailor Uranus is the soldier of the sky and the soldier of fury, who has this space sword that is her weapon, and she's basically one of the main protectors along with Neptune. Sailors Uranus and Neptune are protecting the outermost circle of the solar system with their swords and whatnot. And Sailor Saturn is, at one point, gets possessed. It's a long story, but Sailor Saturn gets gets into some trouble as the soldier of death and rebirth. Her backstory is really something. Her dad is a mad scientist, and one of his experiments went horribly wrong one day and injured parts of her body, and so those were replaced with technical parts. So she's kind of like half a robot, half human at this point. She also has this power to create these barriers when needed, and she can destroy full planets with those barriers that she creates. So it's definitely a ton of power rests on her. Sailor Neptune is the soldier of both the ocean and intuition who is this mirror that is used to reveal evils that were otherwise hidden. So the mirror unveils things that were not previously seen, so she really helps be a detective, play a detective role in all of this. And she's responsible also for guarding the outside of the solar system. Sailor Pluto has a very strong moral compass, which is really important because Sailor Pluto is the soldier of time and space, meaning that she's the one who has the power to turn back time 
but she doesn't misuse it. She could, of course, easily do that, but she does not misuse that responsibility and that ability. She keeps that power reserved four times when it's most needed. She's the guardian She's the guardian of this time-space door, the doorway between dimensions, and she is basically upholding time and space as we know it, no big deal. And she can also just freeze time, which she does with her signature symbol, which is the garnet rod. Then there are the Sailor Starlights, who are this trio, Sailor Star Fight, Sailor Star Healer, and Sailor Star Maker. And they live on this other planet run by the Fireball Princess, and their story varies among versions, but really the the thing to take away from their presence is that they can help out on Earth. So when they go on Earth, they disguise as this boy band called the Three Lights, and they can get you know, intel while disguised. There's this other character called Tuxedo Mask, aka Darian, depending on the version you're watching, aka Mamaru. And Mamaru, if I say Mamaru or Tuxedo Mask, just know I'm talking about the same character. He is another reincarnated character, and he's literally a masked tuxedo man. He's wearing a mask and he's in a tuxedo. He, he has this unique connection with Usagi's character, who... Spoiler alert, but they, uh, at the very end of this whole thing, at the end of story arc five out of five, they get married and have a kid and everything. But anyway, so he and Usagi are lovers, and he knows when she's in trouble, really. It is like destiny that they're together, because he has this psychic ability that he got after this car accident when he was younger, which wiped his past memories away and everything, and he knows when she's in trouble. So he can jump in when she needs help. And he doesn't have to really, like she's in charge, but he's there if she needs him. So it's not your typical role of a prince in a story rescuing the princess. She doesn't, she's not helpless until he shows up. He's just, he just will show up for backup if she needs it. But he's really a side character. He's not even like a, an important dominant force in the controlling the narrative. And another spoiler alert he is proven eventually to be the owner of the Golden Crystal, which is the sacred symbol associated with the Golden Kingdom. So if we had to end the Silver Millennium, now we're entering the Golden Era, I guess you could say. Another key character to note, Chibiusa, whose honorific is Small Lady, and her other nickname is Sailor Mini Moon because she's Sailor Moon's daughter, who comes from the future back to this moment with Diana is her talking cat, the younger one. And Chibiusa is actually a pretty big character, even though she is just two years old and can't really talk yet. She actually, in the manga version, it's different, where her two-year-old self is like a disguise for Sailor Cosmos. That's a whole other thing. But anyway, she is this starseed character in the anime, and she's a friend of Helios, this Pegasus character. Those are the main things to know about her, but Chibiusa has a big role in this, even though she's quite young. And her purpose for traveling back to the past is to beg with Sailor Moon to defeat Chaos. Chaos is the name of basically this destroyer, this destructive force, who is going to... They live in like this galaxy cauldron, and the galaxy cauldron is going to basically combust if they don't defeat Chaos, and will destroy their star power, their literal star power. So she's there to warn Sailor Moon that they need to stop Chaos before it is too late. And that will take some sacrifices on their part along the way, but that's that's part of the story. 
the villains. There are many villains, but to go over them kind of quickly, there, what you need to know is that each of the five main story arcs that we've had of this show features a different main villain leading a different group of henchmen of sorts. So the villains always tend to kind of let the henchmen do their bidding, and so they do like the dirty work for them. And that tends to be a dynamic with all these villains. It's not just one villain. It's a villain leading others to do their work for them. So, for example, there is Queen Beryl, who directs the Four Kings of Heaven. Contrary to the name, do not trust the Four Kings of Heaven. And they are trying to collect enough human energy to revive this evil Queen Metallia. So that's one plot line. And in another part of the series, there's Nelenia, who is trapped in this mirror and... She needs, while she's trapped in the mirror, she orders this group called the Amazonas Quartet to go do her bidding. Then there's Chaos, who has his bidding done by Shadow Galactica, which is basically a group of anti-Sailor Scouts. They're like the poser Sailor Scouts. They're anti-selves. They're enemies that are really trying to destroy humanity as we know it so they can recreate it in Chaos's image. And they want to steal the star seeds. They're called the powers of the actual Sailor Scouts. Then there is the Black Moon Clan that is ruled by this other prince. There's Zirconia who leads the Dead Moon Circus, who are basically trying to find that golden crystal that, spoiler alert, Tuxedo Mask has in his possession, but they don't know that at first. Anyway, um, they're trying to free, to free Queen Elenia, the one who's in the mirror. Then there's the Wise Man, whose true form is revealed to be, spoiler alert again, the Death Phantom. And one more, there is this professor, T Tomo, who he created this group called the Death Busters, literally created them, and they are on a mission to revive Mistress Nine, who basically trapped Hotaru. It's a long story, but again, so Mistress Nine basically controls the gateway to different dimensions and has bad intentions and is under kind of a spell, and they want to revive Mistress Nine for their evil ends, and so the Death Busters are on a quest for their professor and creator to do that. This convoluted story may sound weird, and why would you get so emotionally invested in this? And it seems just weird and complex, and there are a lot of planets here, a lot of characters. What is the big deal? Why do people actually like this? What, you know, what, is the, what makes Sailor Moon exceptional compared to other fantasy-filled storylines? Well, I've summarized and thought about this a lot, and I've come to seven broad conclusions summing up why Sailor Moon is so beloved after all these years, and why she stands out from other anime and manga storylines, and why the Sailor Scouts are truly more than just what it sounds like when I explain it. When you see it and watch it, it takes on new meaning, and I'm going to explain that after the break. Reason number one why Sailor Moon stands out as a story the cat characters, especially Luna and Artemis, the most prominent of the cat characters. Luna and Artemis are named after the Roman and Greek goddesses of the moon, fun fact, and Luna also is key because Luna's character gives Usagi the magical brooch that allows her to turn into Sailor Moon. She also is this advisor for Queen Serenity. Luna actually had her own spin-off story, this other manga, that in that plot, this talking cat fell in love with a human and it was a whole thing, but didn't really pan out into anything like long term in terms of Luna getting more of the spotlight over time. The deal with the cat characters is, first of all, it brings a sense of cultural nostalgia because this concept has been done before, thanks Sabrina the Teenage Witch. Popular shows like that, there's something very extra funny and 
just alluring. It just tickles people to see a talking cat or another animal that they're a big fan of, a pet they see themselves having, but one that is sassy and sarcastic. I mean, think about Garfield, right? The epitome of a sassy, sarcastic cat who's probably thinking what a lot of cats are thinking. And so that character has long-term been impactful and well-loved around the world. And people sometimes just really get a kick out of talking animal stories. Also, this the cats have specific meaning in Japanese culture. There's the tale of the lucky cat, which is a really great story. It's really cute. It's about this boy who takes care of a cat who's injured and then ends up, the boy ends up getting good fortune, basically. It's good karma. That's basically the whole story is that he's rewarded for taking care of a cat who is in need. That's also the importance of the cats in the story. But aside from that, just more globally, from an international context, why cats are meaningful is that they've actually been used for quite a long time now when talking about femininity and how cats can actually embody that. There's a unique take on this from this journal of symbols and sand play. The journals of symbols and sand play theory journal talked about this and I will post the study on my site as I always do with studies I reference during the show. And this study basically talked about the symbolic meanings of using cats in as concepts and basically it represents everything that's both light and dark in society and so quote when one looks at it as a symbol of the feminine it contains positive aspects like the spiritual instinct fertility richness and healing on the other hand it also represents destructive and negative aspects like darkness and sorcery the symbol is connected to the redemption of anima that is the unconscious feminine in men and then later on in, in this piece says that the cat, a symbol of the feminine, has both positive and negative aspects, and those two sides need to be accepted in balanced and harmonious ways. Basically talking about your inner woman is important to not get rid of. But anyway, it's associated and always has been with this feminine mystique in TV shows and movies to cats, cat characters, even if they're not talking, but any cat character really. There's so many more examples aside from Sabrina the Teenage Witch and throughout those examples, you'll see that cat characters are given special prominence and often are females in the storyline because of that connection that sociologists have observed about how society views certain animals and things that people like or maybe should like, you know, about the traits associated with femininity have so many good aspects of them that don't get enough attention and that's that inner woman as they describe it those inner feminine instincts are not really feminine they're just human is essentially what I took away from that but anyway all to say that cats are quite alluring whether you realize it or not when you watch certain shows so that's part of the reason why Sailor Moon stands out as a show is for those characters there's also the fact that Luna and Artemis are presumed to be romantically interested in each other, so that's just another fun side plot people seem to love is when animals are bonding, I guess you could say. Second big thing about this show is how it is so beautiful just in terms of its sensory impact. Beautiful visually and audio-wise. It's got beautifully composed music to go with it, as well as the original soundtracks to go with the theater productions, but also just the show in general and the music in it. 
There's also the aspects just in terms of outfits. The girls wore really chic outfits, and they wore everything from, like, fancy ball gowns to leather boot outfits. I mean, they, they really run the gamut, just like any teen experimenting with their style. Another source of their relatability, they wear a lot of cute outfits outside of their superpower costumes. And But those two are really colorful, really fun. The whole aesthetic of their surroundings and everything, it's a rainbow utopia. It's so fun and just visually stunning. The classic illustrations have been as well, not just newer versions. It's always maintained that aesthetic and over the years, no matter what version you're talking about, which I love. Number three is that the plots and various media associated with the show are actually a good thing, a reason why people actually like it, not that they turn away from it. Because it sounds like with so much to unpack in each episode and with so many character webs that differ among the manga and the anime and whatnot and that differ over time and just seem very complex and messy and unnecessarily so, that's actually part of the appeal is because you get so invested in a TV show's world when there is a lot to unpack, when there is a lot to dissect, and then you can take and kind of pick and choose what parts of the show you remember and resonate with. For example, if I was just really into a show that was just a show, no merch, no sequels or other reboots type things happening, it was just the show. And the show had an episode that was very just, it was definitely has a had a pivotal plot point that really was going to then change the trajectory of the rest of the season. If I didn't like that one plot point, I would probably stop watching, or at least be a very irritated, reluctant viewer while I'm invested in the rest of the show. But if the show also had a movie version or a TV version outside of that show or a book version or some other version where the the plot twist was different and it was a plot twist that I preferred, then I'm not done with the show yet. Then I'm giving it more chances. I'm still more invested in the show and I'm not going to write it off. And that's part of the appeal here because if you don't like how a certain character arc goes in the anime, you can turn to the manga version of the story. And they do kind of work in tandem. It's not like the stories are entirely disconnected from each other. They're supplemental, not just like a totally separate piece of work. The manga and anime storylines work together, but at the same time, there are parts and side stories that you can write off if you don't like them. For example, there's this guy, Andrew, who only appears in the anime, not the manga. He plays the role of this struggling musician character, and he also has this unrequited love for one of the other characters. So that story, if you find that charming, congrats, it's in the anime. If you don't like that, Congrats, you don't have to see it in the manga. Also, there are these two priestesses at one point who appear in the manga that don't in the anime. Then there's Helios, which is like the Pegasus character who is friends with Sailor Moon's daughter from the future. And Helios has also an interesting backstory, but it depends on the format. So in the anime, he's basically targeted by the villains of the Dead Moon Circus because he possesses the Golden Crystal, and they're after that, so they target him. But in the other version, in the manga, he's just sealed away inside this horse. This person is sealed away in a horse's body after, uh, after evading, basically, um, the grasp of the Dead Moon Circus who came to invade his kingdom. So it's, it's, uh, it can take the story in such a different direction depending on which part you watch. And you can kind of pick and choose which one you want to legitimize as part of the canon of the story, which is part of the appeal to it.
And it's also just a very intriguing storyline with a lot of twists and turns because this is not only a story of time travel, it's a story of core human values, of love, of loyalty, of justice, of how you want to leave an impact on the world, of who you really stand for and by. Uh, it's about um, t deciding, you know, how much power you can take. And it's about this female sisterhood of characters. It's, it's about so much. And actually, so a couple of the main plot lines, you know, that are just so interesting to watch carried out, just from a viewer perspective, is that, first of all, they're on the hunt for that silver crystal. Then there's also the fact that they want to stop the end of the world from chaos. There's So plot one of the story is setting the scene, and that's when Usagi and her friends get reincarnated and sent to the future. But plot two is Usagi and her future husband, the masked tuxedo man, have their daughter who comes back from the future to help them find the silver crystal, and they're getting pursued by the wise man and the Black Moon clan along the way. Plot three is when the Death Busters show up and wreak havoc, and the Sailor Scouts are trying to prevent them from messing up the space-time continuum and the doorway that's used to go between dimensions. Plot four, the characters finally go to high school and fight against the Dead Moon Circus. And then plot five, the characters fight against Battle Galactica, a.k.a. those anti-scouts, the, the poser sailor scouts. So there is just so much action, so many characters. You've got to find one that resonates with you. You know, you've just got to love one of them. And that's part of the appeal of all of the literally it's a multidimensional show. Number five is the fact that this show has queer representation in a way that is not fetishizing the queerness or otherwise just othering it and making it seem like it's a plot point. It's just kind of a subplot. It's not really like front and center. It's just normal. It's normalized in the show. Sailor Uranus and Sailor Neptune are love interests in some versions of the show. And that really appeals to some of the viewers who just really like to see that representation, especially in anime and the manga world. Number six that ties into number seven are that it shows female power as well as the multitudes females contain. So as I've said before, the masked tuxedo guy, he is a side character. He's not swooping in to save the princess, as it were. He is, he's not needed, essentially. And it's not like I don't like him as a character, but you know what I mean. He's not necessary. He's not crucial for carrying out the plots of protecting the world. That's not his role at all. They didn't need him to be assigned to that role along with the girls who kind of saved the day. They also avoid stereotypes about cat fights and other tropes about females who have to work together because this show really embodies the sense of sisterhood, of strong female relationships, and they don't just get into this petty drama like teenage girls always seem to get into in movies and TV shows together. That's just not the case in this story. They rely on more important plot lines that deal with broader concepts of humanity and loyalty. Also about these characters are, this is the ultimate thing for me that I love so much, is that they contain so many multitudes, like I said. This is not your typical heroine who either is defenseless or is just way too prideful and unlikable, something, or is just one other extreme, too, you know, quote-unquote boyish or mannish or not enough or whatever. But they're an extreme, you know, quote-unquote girly girl or quote-unquote to tomboy. But these girls are everything in between and more. Like, they don't fit into a box. It's so often where 
characters in shows get a one-sentence descriptor, or they can be summed up with a few adjectives. Their place in the show is pretty easy and quick to summarize, but these girls are so... They have such an array of interests and personality traits that they defy those boxes. So, for example, like I said about Sailor Moon, she loves hanging at the arcade. She's kind of a crybaby. She gets worried a lot and scared. She's the ultimate epitome of the phrase that fear is not the abs or courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is knowing you have fear but doing something anyway. She's the ultimate epitome of that. And so she's just very, very human. She's not a caricature or a stereotype of what a teenage girl character should be written as. She is embracing all of her emotions, both the ones considered, you know, girlish or not. And other characters defy those boxed-in categories as well, like Sailor Mercury is that bookworm character who is viewed as, like, the big brains of the operation more than the others even, and... But she has these moments where she's just, like, a blushful teenage girl who, when they bring up her love for romance novels, she gets embarrassed a bit. And that's just another one of her interests, though. She's not all, you know, techie and analytical. She has this emotional side, too. Sailor Jupiter has interests from cleaning and cooking to, quote-unquote, tomboy behavior. Described as, like, a tomboy character, but still is into, like, domestic chores. Sailor Uranus previously had dreams of being a race car driver at one point in the story. Sailor Neptune pa plays violin and paints. On this, in addition to just saving the world, she also does more like at-home hobbies, you could say. Sailor Pluto comes across sometimes as very, very cold, but Sailor Pluto also has moments where she's very, very warm and friendly and has a lot of great values on display. So she comes across sometimes as standoffish and cold and irritated, but that's the thing is that she doesn't... She emotionally fluctuates like a normal person, and that is rarer than you might think when you really look at these characterizations in all TV, not just anime content. And that multi-dimensional characterization is just so important for people to see and be reminded that they don't have to fit that archetype. And there was a really great argument pointed out that this article I will link in this week's newsletter as well on my site is from Complex Magazine, and it basically called Sailor Moon the anti-Disney princess, which kind of sums it all up. And so that got me thinking about the latest that I've been reading about the world of Disney princess characters and how they got their start, so I guess you already have a hint for an upcoming episode that's not directly about them, but you know... Uh, anyway, so that Disney Princess uh, marketing that I've been reading about is talk talked about the focus groups they lead in their quote-unquote fun labs, and in these fun labs they have stationed all over the world, Disney and Hasbro teamed up to try to figure out what new toys kids wanted. This was in 2013, and they were trying to figure out and just explore more what is what do kids really like these days they do this periodically so this was nothing out of the ordinary but they really got some important findings out of this by talking to kids by talking to girls and so this brand strategist who worked with them said quote the prevailing wisdom at the studio was that somehow having the princesses gang together would destroy their individual mythology and therefore the value of their films which is why actually the disney princesses were told that they had to be designed with different colored dresses to separate them and that is so telling think about that that the disney princesses were not fleshed out as characters at all they were so not fleshed out as full characters they were so two-dimensional that people worried that 
they would, their storylines would blur together. So to distinguish them and be like the one who did that or the one who did that, they had to give them a different color dress. You could say, oh yeah, that's the one with the yellow dress or whatever. Wow. Just let that sink in for a minute. So that's what they were told to do from a marketing perspective before. And they they really viewed their storylines as just ending up blending together if they didn't do something overt to distinguish them. And they realized they didn't need to do this because they could have just made the characters more multidimensional. They worried that would lead to less appeal if they weren't stereotypical girly girl characters. But they realized that when talking to these kids, that these girls didn't really care about the things they thought they did as much. They really valued most when asked about what they wanted in these Disney princesses was kindness, compassion, and other values that are not gendered in any way. And what was really important to keep in mind here was from this brand consultant Jess Wiener who was part of this who said quote Disney wanted to reach girls and women in more authentic ways we looked at the princess products on backpacks and things these princesses have always been fairly homogenous looking and in passive poses anyone who spent time with a five-year-old knows they're not in passive poses and that pretty much sums it up they were viewing it as you know this demure presence of these princesses and being a princess was all about this etiquette and following the rules and not raising your voice and taking a stand really. I mean all of these stereotypes were fed into by their assumptions about the customers but when talking to the customers that's all it took to realize that they didn't like those stereotypes either. So if the toy people felt like just they didn't want to either but they were obligated to now they realize they were never obligated to. And regardless of the location of the fun lab around the world all of these girls really said that they were into way more than the princesses were at first you know princesses being into boys or their clothes and these girls didn't say that they wanted to see these core values that core goodness in their characters and the but the important takeaway that connects to sailor moon here is that they these girls some of them did like the boys they wanted a princess with a cute boy they wanted a princess with cute clothes it's not like all of them were like no we totally reject these gendered assumptions about what we like and we don't want to do anything that aligns with female stereotypes no and that's the important point to keep in mind here and what's important in any discourse about who's like a strong female character is that really what feminism itself is all about and female empowerment is that empowering females to do whatever they want to do so it's not an overt rejection like you're a bad feminist or a bad person if you like makeup if you like the color pink all that stuff that's stereotyped as for girls that's really it's up to you if you like that that's the point it's not forcing you into liking it that's female empowerment empowering you to decide if you like it and that that requires options that requires a lot of dimensions of characters shown to you so you can truly decide if that's what you like or if that was just what you thought you liked because you saw no alternative represented. And so that's really what this comes down to is that people resonate so much with Sailor Moon, young and old alike, because she is them in ways that other characters have not been. She's not just that girl in the blue outfit and pigtails, you know as they try to distinguish the princesses. They would, you would not have to distinguish the Sailor Scouts that way because they have such different personalities and layers to their stories. And so it's just so important to keep in mind that Disney tried to shake up how they made clothing and stuff and just in general how they portrayed their princesses after those focus groups because the harm isn't from an image 
as much as it is the lack of other images. So these Disney princesses' stories are not Ron. Like I said, they can like their boys in clothes and all that stereotypical stuff. It's about, if there's no other princess who doesn't like that stuff, that's when it's problematic. And so that's really the, why Sailor Moon is viewed as this feminist piece of work, because she is, she's likes boys. She has a love interest. She's into fashion, or at least she dresses like it. <laughs> she's into, you know, she she's into quote-unquote girly stuff, but she's also, she gets very tough and, you know, like a quote-unquote baddie character. And so she really, her, she's not like the superpower, supergirl, it's not like supergirl characters, yes, because they're totally like anti-everything feminine. It's not, that's not what it's about. It's about the fact that they are, but they also aren't afraid to show other sides of themselves, and they're allowed to be themselves. And so that's the ultimate pull, is that these characters show different sides of themselves, and the ultimate goal of any feminist movement, whether it's based on media content they want to change or whatever, is to let women feel like they have the power to show them, show every side of themselves, not discard any of them, not feel like any of them are shameful, and, you know, truly step into their own by letting all of their personas merge together and letting them be their true self and show that true self to the world. So in addition to Sailor Moon just being well done, well written, well composed, well drawn, just in every way being high quality and entertaining to watch with really interesting storylines that are supernatural and everything, the seven main takeaways I got while thinking about why Sailor Moon is so beloved. First of all, the cat characters are really appealing to people and likable. Second of all, just in general, the aesthetics of the show are just so pleasing and well done. Third of all, the layered plot line that allows you to personalize your viewing experience so you can decide how much of the story is canon and how much is not, and that sense of autonomy over your experience in the fandom is really exciting and keeps you wanting more and keeps you there interested. Fourth thing, there's so much to unpack with so many personalities and each character is so multi-dimensional and that's really important to viewers. Number five, the queer representation is super important to people. Number six, the female representation in general is super important to people, how female friendships blossom, but not at the expense of other interests in their ability to fight. They fight together, but they also, they have their spats, but it's all just superhuman and relatable in the typical teenage experience in ways that we actually don't see as often as we might think at first we do through often two-dimensional roles we see people playing on screen. And lastly, the show can embodies not just female power of their friendships and everything, but of female multitudes that women can contain. They can be into that other stuff and that doesn't make them like a bad, a bad feminist or however you want to put it. It's just about not being sure and being exposed to signs that you can like other things too and it's okay if you don't like the traditionally feminine things and just giving that getting that freedom to realize who you are in all of your layers and so these layered characters really resonate with people for that reason lastly i would say that it's just a great mix of lighter moments in dark storylines there are actually some quite a few deaths throughout the storylines that you might not expect of really prominent characters throughout the time but and it, the show talks about matters that are very heavy about what are you willing to sacrifice for the ones you love and things like that this is the fate of the world in their hands here 
And their theme song lyrics are fighting evil by moonlight, winning love by daylight. So again, it's that night and day thing where they really show all sorts of aspects of a story. If you're into certain plots about relationships, it's for you. If you're into more action in a story, it's also for you. It's everything. It's really about being willing to risk it, to risk it all for who you love and not necessarily expecting a happy ending. That's the thing is the story, again, villain after villain, but they keep trying because it's not about if they succeed, it's that, well, what if you don't even try? So they're trying, knowing that they may have to sacrifice a lot, but in the name of love and justice, they're willing to do that. And lastly, uh, one more thing about this is just the Sailor Moon really mixes mentalities that I appreciate of never giving up hope, but also pragmatism. You know, that's why she's very in tune with her emotions. She's not super optimistic, this cheer up, everything will get better mentality, but she's also, she's very rational, but at times also emotional. And it's just, again, it's a very interesting mix of she's so persistent and she knows things won't always go her way and sometimes she really doesn't want to do them, but she does them and she knows what needs to happen. So she has this inner strength and determination that really can come out even when times are incredibly dark and foreboding. So it's ultimately, when people say that a show is everything, it may be an exaggeration, but when you say Sailor Moon is everything, it kind of is, frankly. And I know I'm biased as I say all this, but... I think exposing my bias when talking about this does not omit my observations on the fandom. These are observations that are shared among many in the fandom, and I hope I've summarized them in a way that did justice to them. And I'm sure there are even many more reasons I didn't list here about why we adore Sailor Moon and her world so much. Also, she really laid a groundwork. And she continues to have that impact today, not just because there's new content always to look out for, but also because... Characters like Sailor Moon were not around at that time in the world of anime and manga. She really created this new branch of anime, the female warrior role, which emphasis on the female, the fact that this woman could be that warrior, but also she in she embraced feminine traits, uh, so so called you know quote unquote feminine traits with. Uh, with that warrior mentality and realize that, you know, they're not mutually exclusive. It's all about no mutual exclusivity in who you are. And that's what Sailor Moon and all of the Sailor Scouts are all about. That was today's episode of How to Stand. Thank you for listening. Tune in to my other show, 17 Karat K-Pop, for more anime talk in the future. That's my only hint, though, for that. But I will keep talking about this a bit. And next week, though, we will change themes. So stick around. Thank you for listening, as always. And I will see you next week. Don't forget to sign up to the newsletter for this recap and the sources I referenced. Links to those will be in the newsletter. Go to my website, 17karakpop.weebly.com. You click the drop-down menu for more. Then you'll see a blog option. Click blogs. Click posts. And then the post will show you. Or you can click blog and subscribe and it'll go right to the subscription page. But if you want to see it first, go to posts. Again, that's more blogs, posts, or more blogs, subscribe. That's the order of what you click on, and then you can stay tuned every Friday for that. Thank you all for listening, and I will see you next week.